KMTT, Kimitzion Tetzei Torah, Friday, the 13th of Kislev, Erev Shabbat Kodesh, Parshat Vayishlach, you are listening to the Erev Shabbat program with your host Jonathan Snowbell. This week's uh, Parsha, Parshat Vayishlach, is a, is a big favorite amongst people who want to draw conclusions for a certain religious, political ideology. And of course, as things are, usually people conclude the conclusions in both directions, which of course leads us to the conclusion that what we're dealing with is inconclusive. Um, This could be this confusing statement could be applied to Yaakov Avinu at the beginning of the Parsha, how he dealt with Esav, did he deal with Esav properly, should he have been, if we uh, speak in a lower English, kissing up to Esav, should he not have, should he have been standing his ground proudly, is going after peace, uh, acceptable or at certain costs it's unacceptable and we see after, uh, in Rashi we see different uh, we see different uh, vantage points on this where sometimes Rashi seems that Yaakov is taking the right path and sometimes he might be might, maybe he was overdoing it in his attitude towards Esav and because of that there was a loss to Yaakov Um what I want to discuss actually is not the story of Yaakov and Esav, but maybe perhaps the more powerful story, and that is the story of uh, Dina, Shimon Velevi, and Yaakov. And here too, as I said, um, different political, ideological, religious groups want to conclude in different directions. There's the one group who hold Yaakov as the standard and Yaakov's opinion as being the correct opinion and say look what uh, this violent murderous action of Shimon and Levi it was a terrible Chilul Hashem and we see from Yaakov's attitude towards Shimon and Levi's actions that this is inappropriate behavior acting in a zealotrous manner is inappropriate, it is wrong and and Yaakov Avinu's attitude towards Shimon and Levi clearly um, dictates what the correct course of action should have been. On the other hand, we have the people championing a more zealot-like uh, code of behavior, and they see, look, look at Shimon and Levi, Shimon and Levi, Bnei Yaakov, who took action, harsh action, but it was the right action to do, and. And, and we're supposed to learn from their beha- behavior that at times we have to take action into our own hands and that's the appropriate action to take, violent. And then they'll bring out other examples as well. Look, Hanukkah, the, action, the only action that was left was to, uh, uh, an uprising, militant, and that was the correct action to take. And... And as I said, that both conclusions seem decent reads. 
and it's hard to draw the conclusions. It's hard to say this was the correct, this is the correct read in the Psukim, and therefore it's hard for us to draw conclusions, and we must draw conclusions from the fact that it's difficult to draw conclusions. Foreshadowing, the conclusion must be that in these difficult situations where there are complicated issues to balance out, neither conclusion is a clear conclusion, and therefore we must be very careful careful in evaluating when we are faced with similar situations what our course of action should be. Because there is no clear conclusion. And if action must be taken, we must be sure that this is the right action to be taken. And we must not make any decision lightly. We must be careful before we do anything rash, over-impulsive. We must be certain that this is the right thing to do. So, in that sense, what I would like to do, I would like to, in fact, show that this week's Parsha is indeed inconclusive and that we have different factors in the text and from outside the text which would lead us to the conclusion that both sides have a very strong case to argue that their actions were the correct actions. And let's begin with uh, Yaakov Avinu. Before we begin with Yaakov Avinu, we'll just add one more sentence where that I think the two values that perhaps are most strongly opposed in this parsha, in this story, are Kanaud, zealotry, on the one hand, and Chilul Hashem, desecrating God's name, on the other hand. Yaakov, let's take Yaakov's point of view. Yaakov's point of view stresses Chilul Hashem. What are the people around us going to think? That we came into a city, and we read the, we read the story, we, came, we, t- we tell the people to circumcise themselves, and when they have no way of defending themselves, we kill them all off. This is the height of cowardice, and being that it's the height of cowardice, it is also a Chilul Hashem. And besides the fact that it's a Chilul Hashem, and this has a strong uh, stressing in the Psukim, it was dangerous. Because what happens now if the neighboring people, seeing how we act in such cowardice, decide to destroy us? This is a dangerous little tribe here. They're conniving, and they're violent, we must get together and destroy them. Furthermore, let us say that Shimon and Levi believed that they were justified in killing off the people to save Dina. But why did Bnei Yaakov come and take the booty? Bnei Yaakov ba'al al chalalim ba'yavozu al ta'ir et sonam ve'et bekaram ve'et chamorehem ve'et asher ba'ir ve'et asher basadel akachu et kol chilam ve'et kol tapam ve'et neshehem shavu ve'yavozu ve'et kol asher ba'bayit So you had to save Dina you had to strip the city of every last piece of gold 
of every child, of every woman, of every sheep. This is an action which seems to be an action of wanting money, not justice. If they wanted justice, they could have modeled themselves pardon me, that they'll model themselves after something historically later, after the story of Purim. When the Jews defended themselves against their enemies in the story of Purim, they didn't take any of the booty because they were trying to prove a point. We're not interested in the booty, we are interested in defending ourselves against our enemies. So if you needed to save Dina, why take the booty? And finally, Yaakov Avinu seems to get the last word. At the end, in Parshat Vayechi, when Yaakov is speaking to all his sons, he has harsh things to say to Shimon and Levi, and in fact, he gives them what appears to be a curse at the end. I'm going to spread them out. They're not going to be a united, strong tribe. They're going to be spread out. They're going to be a weak tribe. They're both going to be weak tribes. So Yaakov gets the last word, in, which implies on a literary level, that Yaakov's opinion is the final opinion. And his opinion, of course, is that Shimon and Levi's action was inappropriate. On the other hand, there are certain factors pointing us to the direction that perhaps Shimon and Levi acted correctly. On a literary level, Shimon and Levi finished the argument with Yaakov Avinu. Will our sister be a zona? That's how the Torah chooses to end the story. The Shimon and Levi's final words, implying that there's no answer to this question. Yaakov Avinu's position will indeed demand that Dina will be a zona. Furthermore, if Yaakov Avinu was disturbed by the fact that Shimon and Levi put them into danger, so we see by God's response to the story that they were in no danger, or God protected them. Shortly after the end of the story, in Pasuk He and Perak Lamed He, it says, Vayisau, they left Shechem, Vayihi chitat Elohim al he'arim asher sivivotehem velo Yaakov. The fear of God was placed upon the cities surrounding them, and they did not run after B'nai Yaakov. The threat existed that they would run after them and chase them and try to engage them in battle, but the fear of God was placed upon them, and they did not. Does God placing His fear upon the neighboring cities not imply perhaps that He agreed with Shimon and Levi's action? We've seen this before, when, when Avram Avinu did an action which we thought was questionable, should he be telling Paro that Sarah is his sister? But God protected him, and God brought plagues upon Paro, and Avram Avinu walked out of Mitzrayim a richer person, to the extent that God's intervention on Avram's behalf led him to the conclusion that this is the right action to do, and he repeated this action when he went to Avimelech, as we've discussed previously. So to here, perhaps, if God is 
protecting them from the neighboring cities and doesn't inflict any loss upon them as a result of this action, perhaps is God saying that this was the right thing to do. And, and a practical question. When we were describing Yaakov Avinu's position, we said, what type of cowardice is this to, to have everybody circumcise themselves, go over some minor surgery and then walk into the city and kill everybody? Let's ask ourselves a question. How does one save Dina? You come into an area, you're a min- minority, there's an existing hierarchy, the king of the city, or the king's son, has taken away your daughter, who you care about, who's important to you. How are you going to get her back? So the Ramban suggests that they were hoping that by offering the Brit Milah, that they would refuse and return Dina. But they didn't refuse, and they didn't return Dina. And perhaps Shechem, being a powerful man, was not going to return Dina. Can a band of several men go into the city and try to just take her back? They would certainly lose. How was one to save Dina? Was Dina not important enough to be saved? So the only way Shimon and Levi knew how to save Dina, because they felt, and perhaps they were right, that they weren't going to get Dina back from Shechem. Shechem was not going to give up on Dina. And the people of the city would certainly not allow Shimon and Levi to walk up there and take away their sister. And they would come to Shechem's defense. The only way to take Dina back was perhaps when they were weak to take Dina back. Why did they have to kill them? Perhaps they knew that if they would just walk into the palace and take away Dina, then these people would certainly run after them. They wouldn't allow their king to be dishonored that some common people walk in and take away their sister. They had to kill them and walk away with their sister because otherwise there would certainly be a battle. A battle which they would lose. Those those who support the position of Yaakov have to ask that question. How were they to save Dina? Were they not to save Dina? Was Dina not important enough to be saved? And finally, if Yaakov Avinu cursed Shimon and Levi that they would be spread out amongst Am Yisrael, and they would not be significant then in that sense, is Levi insignificant? Is Shevet Levi the tribe that came to Moshe's defense at Chet Egel and killed at Moshe's command 3,000 people who were worshipping the Egel. Were they an insignificant tribe? The tribe that works in the Beit HaMikdash, carries the Mishkan, from them came the Kohanim. Are they an unimportant tribe? Pinchas ben Elazar ben Aaron Kohen from Shevet Levi who took a spear in his hand and stopped the plague in Am Yisrael when the Nasi of Shevet Shimon brazenly took a foreign woman in front of everybody. 
Is Pinchas an insignificant person? Points to ponder while we listen to Rav Tavori and we'll try to draw some inconclusive conclusions after we listen to Rav Tavori. This week on Yutet Kislev is the yard site of Rav Moshe Tzvi Neria, the founder of Yeshivat Bnei Akiva, the founder of the Reshet, of the network of all the Yeshivot of Bnei Akiva and the Upanot as well. Rav Neria was born in Lodz in Poland in 1913. His father was a Rav and educated him by himself. As a young man, very young, Rav Neria, Rav Moshe Tzvi, went to Minsk to learn Torah. At the tender age of 17, he decided that he didn't want to live in Poland, in Russia, and he wanted to go on Aliyah. He wanted to go to live in Eretz Israel. Primarily, it seems that he wanted to go not just to Eretz Israel, but specifically to Rav Kook in Yerushalayim. He wrote to Rav Kook, in those days, in order to leave Russia, in order to leave those areas, you had to have a certificate from someone in Eretz Israel who sort of took care of you and arranged things for you. There were other students at that time who also came from Russia, Poland, to Eretz Israel and received certificates from Rav Kook himself. Not only did Rav Kook send him a certificate, but he sent him a ticket to come. Rav Yisraeli, who later was to become somewhat of a partner in Rav Neria, with Rav Neria in Kfarhawe, also was one of those Russian olim who came to the yeshiva of Rav Kook. As soon as Rav, Gersh, Rav, Rav Neria, Rav Moshe Tzvi, came to, Mer- to Merkaz at the age of 17. He immediately went to Rav Kook's house, began learning in yeshiva, and developing as a young Tamid Chacham. He is a very pro- was a very prolific writer and wrote many stories about his learning in Merkaz and about the people with whom he had dealings at that time. He learned for a short time with Rav Yudek Yashuni, the known as the Ilui of Grodner, Rabbi Yudel Grodner, who was known to be, at that time they called him the Arisha Bechabura Shebemerkas Harav, the strongest person in the yeshiva. When Rav Neria was chosen to learn with Rav Gishuni, he looked at it as a very big honor that he was chosen to learn with such an Ilui and certainly made his name in the world of Torah. But Perhaps even more than being famous for being a Tamid Chacham and a Lamdin, Rav Neria became very much involved in public community life. He wrote that when he was in Chutzlaretz, when he lived before he came to Israel in Poland and Russia, he said the battle that he always thought about, the issues that he dealt with were very personal. How can one person stay kosher? in an environment where there's hardly any kosher food, where Shabbos was not felt on the streets. Everybody had to protect their own identity. He said when he came to Merkaz, Rav Kook taught him the idea of the klal, 
the idea of the community, and how important it is to be involved in communal work. And true to the teachings of his Rebbe, Rav Neria, as a young man, began to be active in the local sniff of Bnei Akiva in Yerushalayim. He became, at first, a madrich, then later on became the Merakes of the sniff. When he was only 26 years old, in 1939, Rav Neria decided that there must be an educational system for the young people of what they called at that time the Yishuv HaChadash, not the old, older-fashioned people of Yerushalayim, the standard identity of the Yishuv at that time, but the younger generation, the generation of Chalutzim, if you wish, who also were to be brought into the world of Torah, to be brought into the world of Yeshivas. And he went to Kfar Haroeh in 1939 and began to build what eventually became the Yeshivot of Bnei Akiva, Yeshivat Kfar Haroeh. I said before that Rav Yisraeli, the, one of the other Russian Olim, who learned in Merkaz, became the Rav of Kfar Haroeh, and Rav Neria began his yeshiva in Kfar Haroeh. The first class of that yeshiva, which eventually started becoming a high school, a yeshiva tichonit. The first class were very few young students who had this dream in mind that the fellows who wore the kippah srugah that knitted kippah, which became eventually the symbol of this generation of Yeshivot Bnei Akiva, could also be involved in, in learning Torah, involved in a yeshiva. And eventually it turned into a yeshiva tichonit, a yeshiva high school. Today it sounds, as a matter of course, a yeshiva high school, people go to yeshiva high school. In those days the concept was completely unknown. The yeshiva ktana, a place where people had studied only Torah, was in existence. But a, a type of yeshiva where they combined Torah with secular subjects was totally unknown at that time in Eretz Yisrael. Rav Neria in Kfar Ho'eh, and more or less around the same time the Midrashiyah in Pardes Chana, founded by Rav Yogel, were the first two institutions that had the idea of creating what is today so well known as the Yeshiva Tichonit, the Yeshiva High School. And as we all know, Yeshivat Kvar was the first, but eventually a whole network of Yeshivat Bnei Akiva was founded all over Israel. There are many, many Yeshivat Tichoniot under the auspices of Bnei Akiva. Rav Neria was considered the Rosh Yeshiva of Yeshivat Bnei Akiva. Later on, a new Reshet or part of that Reshet was created when the Ulpanot of Bnei Akiva were founded. The Ulpanot today also exist in many, many different cities. There are many, many Ulpanot and at that time also Rav Neria was considered the Rosh Yeshiva of all the Yeshivot and all the Ulpanot. An interesting story happened in America when Mr. Kamenovich, the well-known Rav who was involved with Yeshiva Tarvadas. He was very modest and refused to be called Rav Kamenovitz. 
So they called him Mr. Kamenovich. When Yeshivat Torvadat was founded, he was one of the leaders of the yeshiva, one of the movers behind the whole institution. Later on, as he became older, they founded the first Beis Yaakov in America. Mr. Kamenovitz was honored to speak there. The people were a little concerned because, after all, he was an older gentleman, but they wanted him to speak at that time. He began by saying, today we are more here to lay the foundations for building Yeshivat Tarvadat. And the people interrupted him a little bit uh, embarrassed and said, uh, Mr. Kamenovitz, today we're founding Beis Yaakov. Tarvadas was founded years ago. And Mr. Kamenovitz continued and said, today as we found Yeshiva of Tarvadas. And people said to him, uh, we're founding Beis Yaakov today. And his reply was extremely sharp. He said, I certainly know when they founded Tarvadas, and I know today that they're founding Besiakov. But until they really found the Besiakov, Tarvadas could not really exist, could not really continue. If you don't have the proper young ladies to marry the young men who learn in Tarvadas, then the future of the whole institution is not assured. Only when we found a Beis Yaakov can we be guaranteed that Tarvadas has a kiyum, has a continuation. And one might say the same thing about Rav Neria's work. Until they founded the Upanot of Bnei Akiva, you couldn't guarantee the survival of the Yeshivot Bnei Akiva and the future of those students. So when he founded the Upanot, in a sense, he refounded and reestablished Yeshivat Ben Akiva. Rav Neria was a man of many, many talents. He was a musician. He wrote different songs and taught his songs to his chanichim, to his students. And some of them are very well known today, but not everybody knows they are written by Rav Neria, the Himnon of Ben Akiva, the national anthem, the anthem that is known throughout Israel as the hymnon, as the anthem of Bnei Akiva, was written by Rav Neria. And there were other songs that he wrote as well. In that respect, Rav Neria followed the path of Rav Kook. Rav Kook, besides being everything he was, was also a menagin, also someone who wrote music. And again, we have some of Rav Kook's migunim and his poems till this very day, one of the songs that is sung traditionally at, at the end of Havdalah, La'ad chaya bilvaveinu ha'emunah ha'nemana, that in our heart there still exists that pure belief, was written by Rav Kook. Rav Neria, as one of his students, emulated that path as well. One of the first students of the first class of Kfar is a friend of mine, Rav Yedaya HaKohen, who told me that a few years after Rav Neria founded the yeshiva, remember that he was 26 at the time that he founded the yeshiva. And then when he realized that he's a Rosh Yeshiva and this is going to be a, a true Torah institution, Rav Neria decided that he perhaps left the yeshiva a little bit too young and in order to be a real Rosh Yeshiva, he should spend some more time learning. And he took time off from his public work 
and devoted himself for a number of years to, talk, to learning. And later on, he was a true bucky. He knew a tremendous amount of Torah. Now, in the world of, of Bnei Akiva, Rav Neri was known for his pe'ilut, for his, all his activities, for all his, his building of yeshivot, building of ubanot, for the music, for the books he wrote. But he was also a, a real Tamit Chacham. Evidence of this can be proven by many, many Chidushei Torah that he wrote and printed. His literary output is quite remarkable when we consider how involved he was in public activity. He wrote many, many svarim, and some of his svarim centered around Rav Kook, telling stories about Rav Kook and writing about Rav Kook. Of course, there are also Chidushei Torah, his own Torah insights are written in many, many books. One of the books that I particularly enjoyed, that written by Rav Neria, was a book called Bizdeha Literally, the word Stehariya means the periphery. But of course, Hariya is the name that was used from Rav Avram Yitzchak HaKohen, the initials, the acronym of Rav Yitzchak Avram Yitzchak HaKohen Kuk, the kvar that the yeshiva was in was kvar haro'eh, and this book, Bistayariyah, is about the periphery of Rav Kook, and it tell, tells stories about the people who were close to Rav Kook at the time that Rav Neria was in yeshiva, and tells about them and their relationship to Rav Kook. Some of the people that he wrote about in that sefer are Rav Hutner, the, the later Rosh Yeshiva of Chaim Berlin, the one who founded Chaim Berlin, the author of the Pachat Yitzchak, the author of the Torah Hanazir, as a young man was very influenced by Rav Kook. He used to come to the yeshiva, to Merkaz Harav, and he used to learn with Rav Kook, especially in the world of Machshava. Rav Neria quotes Rav, Rav Hutner as saying, I owe 50% of my existence to Rav Kook. Rav Kook opened my eyes to the Maharal. Rav, Rav Hutner, who developed so much of the Maharal in his Svarim Pachat Yitzchak, was so influenced by Rav Kook. This is the information taught to us by Rav Neria. Or one of the people with whom I had the zchus of being attached to in my life was the son of Rabbi Levine, Rav Chaim Yaakov Levine, who was a child prodigy in Yerushalayim, the son of Rabbi Levine, who was very close to Rav Kook. He used to go to Rav Kook's house at night to just see Rav Kook, to help Rav Kook, to bring Svarim around to Rav Kook. And he also was written about in this book, Bistei Hariyah. I'd just like to recount, recount one short story about Rav, Kook, about Rav Neria that I was a witness to. Many years ago, Rav Neria came to America, as he customarily did. At that time, he stayed in my parents' house in Borough Park for Shabbos. And during the week, he wanted to go to the Shia of Rav Salavechik. So he went into the shear as a regular student. He sat in a regular chair in the shear room in a regular class day, and he sat in the shear. At the end of the shear, Rav uh, Salavechik acknowledged the presence of Rav Neria and said to him, perhaps Rav Neria, who founded the, Rosh, the Yeshivot B'nai Akiva, so much Torah is being learned and spread because of him, perhaps Rav Neria would like to say something to the class. Everyone expected Rav Neria either to refuse or to say something about the Parsha, some sort of a drasha. So instead, Rav Neria related to the shear that Rav Salavich had given. And he, de- he developed his own 
thoughts on the same topic that Rev Cook, that that Rev Soloveitchik had spoken about. I remember he quoted a Chassam Sofer about building a sukkah, and it was very impressive that he obviously was totally unprepared. He came to a regular shear, heard the shear, and had insights and comments to make on the shear. Besides the Torah that he said, he also gave a message to the students comparing Eretz Yisrael to a sukkah, and he mentioned the comment in the name of the Vilna Gong that the same way there's a din of Ta'asevelo Mina'asui in sukkah, a sukkah cannot be, must be made. If you dig out something and a sukkah is created somehow, but you didn't do it directly, the sukkah is invalid. And he said, Eretz Yisrael is like a sukkah. He used as a drasha to say, Eretz Yisrael is like a sukkah. That you must do it, you must build it, build Eretz Yisrael. The words that he said then impressed me and other students in the Shia very much. His life impressed all of Eretz Yisrael. The movement of Yeshivad Bnei Akiva has certainly changed the face of Eretz Yisrael, of the Bnei Akiva movement, of Tzionut Datit, of religious Zionism in general, and, and Bnei Akiva in particular. And to this will always ha- will always be merit the merit of the Schus of Rav Moshe Tzvi Neria, whose Yardzeit is in Yutes Kislev. Thank you very much, Rav Tavori. If we wrap up what we previously discussed, Shevet Levi is one of the most significant Shvatim in Am Yisrael. They are spread out throughout Eretz Yisrael. They don't have a tribe, a, la- a piece of land for their tribe. They have cities spread out all of Eretz Yisrael. They teach Torah to Am Yisrael. They work in the Beit HaMikdash. Shimon, on the other hand, is essentially wiped off the map. After the story in, 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 in Parshat Pinchas, we don't hear of Shevet, Pinchas, uh, Shevet Shimon. They don't seem to appear in Tanakh. And what happens is that their, their land is somehow swallowed up within the land of Shevet Yehuda. They are insignificant. So Yaakov Avinu's Achalkembe Yaakov Afitembe Israel came true both in Levi and Shimon, but in two very different ways. And perhaps our conclusion is, is that the action is a questionable action of Shimon and Levi. There are merits that justify it, and there are reasons not to justify it. And depending on our, our continual actions, we prove ourselves before God, if we're moral or immoral. And Shevet Levi proved that they're truly moral. And Levi, their father perhaps, was acting out of morality. Perhaps he was right, perhaps he was wrong. But he was acting out of morality. And what he thought was right. Shimon in the future, acts inappropriately in a zealotrous manner. Therefore, they're wiped off the map. Can we conclude anything from this story? As we said at the beginning, Yaakov Avinu has a strong position, Shimon and Levi have a strong position. The conclusion is that nobody can take this story and wave it as a proof 
for their ideology. And the only thing we can do conclude from the story is that we, when we're in difficult moral situations, we have to carefully, carefully evaluate our actions and be careful that we're not motivated by the wrong things and that the actions that we're taking are appropriate and moral actions and hope that we have siyata dishmaya, God's help in making the right decision. And with that, we will conclude and say Shabbat Shalom.